is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. Just for everyone's record, we usually start recordings at 3 p.m. Hong Kong time. It's 3.19. I was telling Sharice this. For all creatives, their their biggest weak point is time. Okay. So, yes, I have no defense. I am 18 minutes late to this call. My, 20 minutes late. My excuse, my excuse... And I know that it's an excuse and not a good reason. It's because I think I had my proper like first really gray morning in London. And I told you this on chat. My alarm went off and I didn't even realize that it was my alarm. Like I thought I had randomly woken up in the middle of the night because it was so dark. And I was Were like... You refreshed? Hmm? Were you refreshed? I mean, I guess I could have been, but I just, it didn't make any sense to me. In that moment, because it was just so dark. I was like, oh, it must be 4 a.m. I don't understand why I woke up. Interesting. I've never really had that feeling, even living back in Canada. Like you just, you kind of just recognize that there's not but a ton of stuff. You know what it is though? I think I should get a clock. Oh, instead of your cell phone? No, no, no. no. I'm okay to use my cell phone for the alarm, but back home in Hong Kong, I have a big wall clock. And Does it make a noise? Does it tick tock? It doesn't. It's a smooth oh. running. Anyway, I look at that every morning. Like that's my habit to like know what time it is. But now I feel like I usually don't know the time. Got it. All right. I had something written down that I actually I know. You actually wrote a script. Earlier. It's amazing. How do I see it's weird because now you've now you've told everyone it's a script and now it's gonna be so inauthentic when I say it. It was gonna be weird anyway, because you're not very good at reading pre-written things. I'm terrible. I'm the worst at it, which is why I don't do any of those. Re- I try to minimize how often I read scripts for making. Yeah, actually, it's been a long time, I feel like. I'm, just, I'm much better off the cuff in an interview. Or I just need to speak a lot more slowly. Anyways, I'm waiting so, for you. I'm waiting so for what, you to get into it. <laughs> All right. So a few days ago, I came across this article on how to, how to in, improve your marketing for your podcast. And one thing people suggested was drill down into one thing, into one request. And we're often like, hey, can you please share this podcast? But now we're going to reposition it as if you really enjoy this podcast, and we assume you do because we've gotten a lot of good feedback, please do us one favor and one thing only. Share this podcast with somebody you think would find value in having their ideas around creative culture challenged or contextualized. That's all we ask hit that share button, post it on Instagram stories as some of you have, or even better yet, Twitter. And the reason why I said Twitter is because there's links. Yes, I actually really like this because you also told them specifically how to share. And previously we'd just be like, share this with a friend if you like us. But now we're telling you, go post about us. It really helps. Yes. Anyways, shall we get into it? Didn't you want to tell me about your life changes? 
Oh, no. So I had this. Is that going to now take the rest of the 40 minutes that we have? No, it, it, it should be quick. So I've been thinking about this. Do you remember a while back, Elon Musk was smoking pot with Joe stuff. Rogan? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Even before that, no, when no, he was no. talking I was just about okay, how continue. basically he was talking about how we're all living in this big simulation. Yes. I never really looked that deeply into it. But oh my God. Are you I'm, about to tell me that you think we're a computer simulation? Well, potentially. So the reason why I, I've looked into it more deeply is that, okay, everything that I'm doing currently is because of something that happened in the past. Everything happened because of some particular reason. So, and this is also me transparently letting you know that I don't know all the sort of definitions, how to how to communicate this maybe in a way that's probably been researched and falls within some sort of line of like philosophical reasoning. But everything that we're doing currently is a byproduct of something else, right? So you being in London, me being in Hong Kong, something along the way contributed to us being here. Yep. And doing the certain thing. So far so I it am makes on me board. wonder. So and I was thinking about this because part of me also wonders like what what I'm gonna do after this when I get off this call with you get off this podcast with you is as much as I think I own my own thoughts, do I own my thoughts or were they part of a prescripted narrative for me anyways? And like everything that's meant to be luck, is it really just something that just fell in line? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. It's called predeterminism. Exactly. Like I'm Vaguely like that's actually that. literally the term used in philosophy yeah, as in, exactly. do we have real free will or are all our actions and thoughts and events determined in advance? Yeah. And this is something that I probably should have listened to more intently during philosophy 101 in my first year of uh, university. You went to philosophy 101. Is this a real course that you attended? Yeah, I did. I think okay. we all had to in arts or whatever. So even now, like when I think that I'm trying to beat the system by like, hey, I'm going to walk down this way. No, wait, I'm going to walk that way today. It might actually just be deterministic, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes it, it puts you in a bit of a conundrum because you're thinking, well, what am I doing? <laughs> like, do I control what's before me? Or right. am I really just kind of going through the motions? Right. If everything you, or, in my life yeah. has already been pre-planned, what is my agency? So is Elon Musk's whole sort of like we're in a computer simulation aligned with this predeterminism? Is in it a way, similar? I could say yes. But the simulation thing is a little bit more conspiracy theory because the simulation idea is that we are like in the matrix, like we're plugged into, like we're a computer program essentially. Yeah. But I guess in an abstract way, you could also say that it doesn't really matter if we're a computer program controlled by people in outer space or if predetermination exists because in reality, how it affects you is the same if you believe those things. Yeah, because ultimately what I believe is kind of what's going to influence how I operate on a day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I think it's like I've asked, Stanley and I have talked about this before, about the simulation thing. And we're talking about, 
okay, let's say we really believe it. Let's say we really believe that this is a computer simulation. I'm some code, you're some code. This whole event and this podcast is scripted. How does that actually change the way I lead my life? So the reason why this came up was a lot of times people like to say, hey, if it's out of your control, don't worry about it. But if everything is literally out of your control, then what do you worry about? Are you thinking or are you frozen? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> Something that I've really been working on in terms of just how to live my life better is to not get so attached to other people or things approval. And I think it's similar along this line of understanding that there are things outside of your control and what that scope is, is maybe different for different people. As in, if you're, if you really buy into the computer simulation and predetermination, then maybe you live your life in a way where you think whether I eat a banana or an apple is out of my control. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do think to some degree, everyone believes that there are some things within our control. And even if it's an illusion, it's a feeling that we have. Right. Um, but I, that's the thing is like, I've, I'm almost at a point now where I'm, you know me, like you've known ever since like we started working more closely together that I've, tried to control a lot of things yep. that I feel were important. Yep. And now I'm kind of thinking, well, I mean, do I really need to worry that much about it? And it's it's weird because it, I'm a person that's often on the extremities. And like, what does it mean if all of a sudden I like don't care about anything? Because I'm like, hey, it's going to happen anyways. And the fact that I don't care was part of the whole script anyways. Mm-hmm. So... I don't yeah. know. I don't really have an answer for it. I mean, it's just something to think about. Something I've been thinking about. What I think I focus on in terms of like, what do we decide that we can control? What do we decide to care about? Is I can only make the best decisions with the knowledge I have right now in this moment for myself. And not to say that I'm a selfish person, but as in like, um, I take into consideration oh, the way my actions influence Eugene or Macon or my family, but ultimately I can only make the best decision with the information I have and the way I feel right now, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like, I think that is the only thing I think about as within my control and everything but external then, is different. Yeah, but you're also under the pretense that your emotions are something you do control or there's something, yeah, well, no, a, sorry. It, it's, I operate with that f- thinking, whether that is realistic or not, is not always true. It's not always the case. Did I give you this quote about the, about how people were talking about, it's from a book and it was just saying like, what happens if we are emotionless? Mm, I don't and, think you share that with me. You did share me two quotes from Hitmakers. No, this is this is something else. But anyways, it's basically saying that if we didn't have emotion, we wouldn't be able to immediately characterize what was the most important thing to do at any given moment in time. Yeah. Like you'd basically be like frozen because you couldn't decide what's the next thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, should we talk about what stories we uh, we did? Yes, over the let's course do of the that. Last few days. Did we talk about the Edwards letter last week? I don't think so. 
Yeah, so October's We talked about Tendon. We did not yeah, talk about the editor's letter. That was the last letter. one. So this editor's letter actually was pretty well received. I got a lot of good feedback on this. Yeah, this one got really through to some people. Like someone hit you up on the side or you just saw like people posting no, it? No, just saw a lot of people posting it. People in our Slack were talking about it. Um, people that you were sharing some... Uh, people that mentioned, oh, seeing it in the briefing and then really enjoying the editor's letter in particular. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of drew me to writing this, and if you kind of want to know how my process works around these, I really just write it almost within a 24, 36 hour span. Like I have some ideas in the back of my mind, but I prefer to just let it happen. Yeah. And this was just an opportunity for us to obviously talk about Scott, uh, our new CEO, about Sharice being out of office, yep. looking over at yep. Scott, and he's got a little smile on his face. Ooh, Scott. But, uh, basically, our process, you know, with you being out of office. Um, but I think ultimately, the one thing is this respect thing. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because Scott actually is the person that has kind of come in and maybe been our biggest champion. Mm-hmm. And I say this because a lot of us know we do good work. We have passion around what we do, but I think Scott's really pushed us to derive value externally as well and put a almost put a price on it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in very, in very real sense, yeah, put a price on it. If people want to work with us or whatever, then it looks like X, Y, Z. And it's not about being pretentious or whatnot. It's just, hey, you know what? There are certain things that come with working with us, with Macon, with any of the individuals here that we hold ourselves to. Well, and the I thing think it's that, really sort of tying together that self-respect thing. Yeah, the thing that he's really been focusing on and getting us to understand, and it's not something that we don't understand, but I think it's something that we struggle to operate with the belief that our work doesn't just have value as in value to people's lives, but also carries monetary value. And it's funny because it's not like our first day working, but I think both of us and a lot of people on the team have difficulty asking, attributing monetary value to our work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no, it was really good. Um, You talk about thinking about your work in a different way and not just being effective or ineffective, but whether you have respect for your work and whether others are respecting your work accurately. And I think why it took such a long time for me to come around to this idea is that taking the ultra humble approach often in my eyes meant like you didn't care about respect, which I think is actually not true. I don't know what your take what do you what's your thought on that? I think the problem with me and possibly us to put words in your mouth is that we don't we don't personally think of money as a form of respect that we desire. <laughs> Great. That's a good way of putting it. As in it I, I, not just like make it, but I think it's a, it goes to your personal beliefs too. Like it, it means more to us that someone shows their respect through words or time or I don't know, like sharing this podcast, you know, than if they gave me $5 a month. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it actually. And I also realized maybe why 
I personally, this is a little bit of a tangent, but why I've personally just really hated marketing myself or the things we do, I think it's because coming from the editorial side and wanting to preserve the editorial integrity, I always wanted to distance myself from the selling side, which now I kind of come around to. And it's not that I don't understand the value in it, but it's always easier for me to sell someone else than it is to sell myself because of the compounding factor of coming at from an editorial perspective. Yeah. But I mean, it's, if, if anything ever doesn't work out, I think it's really on us. I mean, it's the ownership of, of looking at the opportunities at hand and whether you take them or not. And if, you fail or if you have a misstep, like I don't really see anyone else to blame but ourselves really. Right. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. blame anyone else anyway. Yeah. Is this also a good time to shout out the Unexpected Connections Conference? Sure. We also yeah, have a is... code for people if you would like to get tickets in the next two weeks. So the Unexpected Connections Conference is us putting together this tangible event in Long Beach on November 7th. So it's actually coming up really soon. Um, And it's like a full day, like packed day of really interesting speakers and conversations. Eugene and I will both be present and moderating some of those conversations. It's kind of like a live podcast, actually. It is. If we really think about it. And it's funny because we didn't really position it as such, but this is kind of how a lot of these podcasts make money nowadays. Right. It's like we're taking making it up on tour, except that it's not just the two of us. It's better than that. But in full transparency, we are actually doing this very much as something we are partnering with our friends at Intertrend, who are based in Long Beach. And this is part of one of their existing programs that they've done on and off for the last few years where they've brought together some of their closest friends. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be kind of a good opportunity for us to take Macon into a more tangible format. Yeah. And the speaker lineup is kind of a mix of people that, you know, Inner Trend wanted to bring and then people that we wanted to bring. So it will be quite a good mixture. It's definitely not just like one type of creator. Yep. Sounds good. And some of the guests include Kenya Hara of Muji, John Jay of Fast Retailing, which is the parent company of Uniqlo, David Jason Cho. Maiden, David Cho. Oh, so I've been researching Helen Zia really thoroughly because that's the conversation I'm monitoring and she's really dope. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Really big um, activist in journalism, journalist in the Asian American community. So what's the code, Eugene? The code is MAKEN30. It's a 30% discount. Uh, another story we did was with Ryan Strzok. Yes, that was really cool. A series of abandoned TVs he's been shooting over the course of the last five years. I think superficially it sounds maybe like, yo, this is, this is a dumb project. But for me, what really <laughs> drew me in... No, uh, this is this is me just like being honest. I think if, if you don't look and understand the story. Okay, yes. If you just you listen to, to this podcast and don't go check out the photos, then fine. Maybe you would think that, yeah. Yeah, basically, this is really fascinating to me because he basically took something as simple as shooting TVs on the side of the street and side of the road and actually packaged it into something so layered and nuanced that really is part 
art project, part exploration into like American media relationships. That's why I think it's so cool. And like he's a really fascinating guy. And I obviously I hope he doesn't think I disrespect his thing. Obviously, we had a really good yeah no uh, your Im- dialogue your published text interview is really good and the thing that really sticks out to me in this story is what he says about personal projects and it's it is inspiring to see someone just go out and find a topic and then stick with it and then over a long period of time accumulate a body of work to show and I think not a lot of people work this way because it, it takes a lot of patience and it takes dedication to something. Yeah, I actually have one I'm working on. Oh, really? Yeah, but I mean, now that I've interviewed him, it feels like a personal project. Whereas okay. before, it had just been like a loose collection of bamboo scaffolding photos. Oh, I was just about to say that. I was like, if there is a theme to your work, I already know what it is. You just have to collect everything. Yeah. I know. Yeah, something I've learned from school is that sometimes what you do can already be a personal project, but but you need to add documentation. And then that creates, yeah. that makes something being from like loose fragments into one thing. Mm-hmm. And the last story we released was one with Benedict of Gore-Tex. The reason why I didn't say his last name is because I'm 100% going to get it wrong. Checking, uh, copy editing this last name was giving me like nerves about it. I was like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So the the reason why this all sort of came together was that we did a collection of stories with our friends at Bybora, which is a circular knitted fashion brand based out of Amsterdam. And they had partnered with Gore-Tex on a recent collection called the Hybrid Edition. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with Benedict on the grounds of just understanding Gore-Tex's approach towards fashion because they're obviously bringing in a functional element to it. But also I find these sort of like branded fabrics kind of fascinating because they're not really fashion brands, but they facilitate and offer some sort of attribute that most brands themselves cannot do on their own. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see the perspective uh, from their from their eyes on how they operate as a brand. Makes sense. It does make sense because, I mean, yeah, there are fashion brands who work with innovative materials, like just the actual material as opposed to, you know, a pattern and an entire piece. But if you kind of have two really dedicated companies doing their own thing, right? Like by Bora with his circular knit and then also the aesthetics of it. And then Gore-Tex with the, you know, technological functions, bringing them together will be a better product than trying to have one company do it all. Exactly. So my topic is less about the piece of news, but more of a broader commentary on basically the act of creating something in the face of convenience. But tell us the piece of news anyway. Yes. So the piece of news is that Adobe has finally released a full featured Photoshop for the iPad. So this iPad version is actually pretty high powered. It's going to release in 2019 and it 
allows you to really start working on the go. Most people that I've spoken to have really enjoyed the iPad, iPad Pro experience with the pencil. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to switch back and forth. So you could be working on your computer, your desktop, and your file that's now sitting in the cloud can be downloaded on your iPad. And let's say you go to a coffee shop or you go to a park, whatever, you can work on it. And then go back, sync it, and then work on it again on your desktop. So kind of go back and forth. So this is interesting because I think I have two main thoughts that emerged from this. It's like, as you know, Photoshop used to be a program you would download. And you would download it, you'd pay one price. Or, I mean, I'm sure most people at some point in life have pirated Photoshop. Oh, yeah. Not going to say anything more at this point. This is an aside I've always been thinking about, but what would happen if there was never any pirated Photoshop? Like you can 100%. What do you mean? Like if in the history, no one ever pirated Photoshop? If you could only use Photoshop if you bought it, where would creative culture look like? We'd have way more non-Photoshop options. You think so? Yes. Like as in in Photoshop-like tools, Produced by other companies. Got it. That's if, a, that's an interesting take. I guess I was thinking we've never like, been able to pirate it. Like how many people? I guess what you're saying is that people would need photo editing or graphic design solutions, regardless. Yes, that that was my emerged. assumption. I feel like you were kind of asking, oh, would this have would not if Photoshop had not been widely pirated, would fewer people have become creative in that way? And I think, no, I think people would just have found other software solutions or built their own software solutions. Interesting. Yeah, I think your, your, your your take makes way more sense than mine. Thank you. Mine was like, oh, I was like, yeah, you know what? Creativity as we know it would look so different. But, well, I mean, um, it would because we would have more tools than Photoshop. Maybe it'd be more accessible because yeah, Adobe's maybe. the man, you know, as in Adobe costs a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, anyway, I, I was curious. Continue. That, Photoshop on the cloud. People can now move yeah. from their desktop tablet. What is the big draw on this? I think it's the fact that you're able to work from anywhere. But two things are kind of, you know, spinning in my head right now. It's one... Does software as a service, kind of like Adobe CC's approach and model, Mm -hmm. does that enable more convenience? And does that push these types of companies to create a certain type of product, right? So for example, if Adobe never went the whole cloud-based route, not a subscription, (laughs) would they have had the foresight to create products like this? Mm, Interesting. Interesting question because me being cynical and also having been paying out money to Adobe for many years now, I feel like obviously they went cloud and subscription because this way they earn more money. Yeah. Because previously when I could just buy one version, I could hold on to that version for as many years as I liked until one day, like, you know, my clients forced me or like the file compatibility didn't work anymore. Right. But now I pay every month to be constantly up to date, even though I don't need to be up to date. So this is cynical, Shuri speaking that the cloud and subscription is just for them to like make lots of money. I also Uh, just wonder about, I know this is such a functional question, 
But I would really like to see the cloud Photoshop in action because my Photoshop files are usually pretty big and I'm skeptical. Like I'm skeptical about what is the internet connection that you need and how much time does it take for a Photoshop file to save from your computer and then you can access it as it was on your iPad. You know what I think the solution to that will be? It'll just be a different file. It'll be just like a scaled down version. And then somehow the edits will sync. So you might not have full resolution, et cetera. Uh, That's what I think. But now that I think of it more, I think the fact that if everything becomes cloud and cloud's main draw is everything everywhere, it does force you to create a product that is multi-device for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I don't feel like I'm there yet in the way I work that I could become multi-device easily. I am very attached to my particular machine because of what comes on it and the settings on it. But interestingly, my school offers laptops on loan. So you can just go to the library and for free check out a laptop for up to four hours, I think. And a lot of people use this service. But what this suggests to me is that everything they have is on a cloud because they don't need it to be on the machine. The computer is just a shell to them, which is really, that was kind of mind blowing for me. my, My bigger question actually is, do you think convenience creates better work? Do you think though that Adobe in general and this product continues to perpetuate that um, what we were talking about in the Tuesday briefing about struggle porn? No, no, I don't. You don't think, think so. so? Is about this idea that you should constantly be working? No, but it could also make you design your own schedule, or it could make you have that feeling that you should constantly be working. Maybe. I never thought of it that way, but I was just curious, like, if you have the opportunity to work on the go, what does that mean? I mean, for me personally, I actually think that convenience does, in some ways, relieve the anxiety that comes with, like, a massive task list. So what that means is, like, if I can work on my phone, which I still, I hate working on my phone, like, if I can get something done, shoot out a quick email, that's cool, but... You know, before, if let's say you didn't have that opportunity or you couldn't even view large files or whatever, then that was out of the picture. I actually think that it tied you to your desk. So now you can actually, well, maybe the quality of engagement outside the office is reduced because you're working. But mm. I generally feel better when I have access to a near, a, how do I put it? Maybe, what's the right word? When I have an experience that's quite close to what a desktop experience looks like. I'm not totally convinced that convenience will, in this sense, play a big factor into creating better work. I can think of ways that convenience does contribute, but I don't see it in this, I personally don't see it in this multi-device iteration. Got it. Like the so convenience convenience I see is things like my computer starting up really quickly or 
I think box is really convenient. Like that's a convenient way of file transfer. I, I, I'm not knocking convenience in general. I just don't see multi-device as this convenience factor. Got it. Interesting. I could potentially see it if it really worked. I mean, maybe it's just my lived reality, right? Like, let's say I had a permanent work computer and a permanent home computer. Then that being able to sync perfectly could be really convenient. Yeah. I just don't see what what work do people get done on an iPad on Photoshop? I don't know. You don't own an iPad that has the capability of using like a pen, right? I also don't own an. I've I've never owned an iPad, so I I'm clearly not this target audience. Mm. Mm, could con, could convenience in this way create better work from current non professional creatives? I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, like I have my iPad in my bag right now. I don't know why I brought it, but it's there, and I feel like I'm gonna pull it out. And just mess around with it later. But yeah, it was like, I don't know. I'm just curious. Like, part of me thinks that convenience also removes focus because convenience allows you to kind of dip in and out. Mm-hmm. Which can so be that, good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I mean, I do have working, a lot of, I mean, I've been thinking about this very narrowly in terms of like Adobe Photoshop and the iPad, but I do have a lot of friends who draw on their iPads and iPhones, mm-hmm. but they don't use Photoshop. They use other tools. They use other apps. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the the consensus is between us two is not very clear. We don't really know if it makes better work. Well, what I've, what I've, heard from you is that you have a theory that it could create better work, that it could lead to more people doing work in a positive way because they're enabled to do work. And I would say my position is skeptical. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're probably going to do very basic stuff, right? Because I I would assume that your heavy lifting is probably done on a desktop or I just don't, I think because my response is also in reaction to me knowing what I use Photoshop for and not seeing myself being able or being comfortable doing those things on an iPad, even if it is a full Photoshop. But I cannot speak for people who, you know, maybe this, maybe they don't even have a MacBook. Maybe they just have an iPad and this enables them to get into it and start dabbling around. So... Those are hypothetical use scenarios that would be optimistic. So I picked this because I feel like I pick Chinese topics more or I'm like drawn to items in Chinese news. And I also probably picked this because we talked about Banksy recently and the art market. So... My article is from Artnet and it's about disproving myths about the Chinese art market. And it's funny though, because like I'm not a typical Artnet reader. So what they positioned as myths were also kind of new to me. Did you have that feeling? Yeah, I think in general, I'm not of the same knowledge base as you when it comes to art. So 
everything is a lot fresher and new to me. No, but like even for me, the what they said was a myth aren't things that you or I would necessarily understand as myths because we might we don't have any kind of assumptions about this topic. But I assume that art experts hold what Artnet is saying is myths, like as in people do genuinely believe this. So just to talk about the article a little bit, um, the main myth that Artnet is disproving is that the market for Chinese art is really huge and that the Chinese art market is booming. And basically it goes into these numbers and showing how over the past couple of years, actually the art market has shrunk and the pieces that make it into the news about like, oh, this 18th century porcelain vase went for 18.7 million. Those things are, they don't happen as often as it might seem. Yeah. One thing, or there are several things that I thought were kind of funny because it's very stereotypically Chinese and Artnet addresses that results from Chinese markets are not always reliable because people might not be reporting numbers correctly. And then also there is still a rampant forgery problem, which was probably the most interesting part of this article to me, is that the auction houses, they place the responsibility of verifying items on the buyer, which seems so backwards to me, but correct me if I'm wrong. It just seems like, shouldn't the art house be the expert? How would a buyer have the ability to verify if an object is real? I mean, that's where provenance comes in. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's going to be weird and challenging because you don't really give a lot of confidence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's actually a good way to put it. Even though the Chinese art market looks big and on the surface, it seems as though there are a lot of art houses and auctions taking place in China, the reality is not that. And you shouldn't place that much confidence in the appearance of the Chinese art market. Yeah, it makes sense to me because art is generally something that you purchase having interacted with an established culture or being part of an established culture. And Mm. I think that a lot of what's going on in China currently, it's still in the midst of like developing itself as a culture. Like traditionally art for the rich, ultra rich is just a way for you to park money. Yeah, Right, but and also to floss, right? Like on a really rich level scale. Yeah, so I I'm not that surprised. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a big market, but something that makes me, hmm, I don't know how to describe my emotions about this. But one thing they talk about is how buyers in China that are wealthy tend to shop outside of China for art. And that hasn't changed. Like that's always been the case. They would prefer to go to New York or London or even Hong Kong to buy art as opposed to buying inside China because of the things I mentioned before about the art houses not inspiring a lot of confidence, but also because actually Chinese buyers aren't interested in buying Chinese art. They are more interested in buying international fine art from artists Mm -hmm. that are American or European Usually. And it all just has to come down to like the maturity of the culture, right? I don't know though. See, I don't know if that's the case because yes, okay, the contemporary art scene in China is relatively new as in it's still figuring itself out because of historical reasons, not having that much time to make art, cultural revolution, etc. But Chinese art artifacts 
don't have that problem, right? So then the problem is more like people in China and outside China don't value those artifacts or antiques as much. Mm. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, maybe it goes back to what you're talking about respect, that Chinese people themselves maybe don't respect their own culture enough. I think we've seen that, but I think it's going to change. Hopefully. Yeah. I think that's the big change I've seen as of late in the last five years from the mainland Chinese population is that before they were kind of second rate, but I think now it's like their time to shine and they can kind of confidently step up to the plate and look at all their achievements and be confident about it. Yeah, and then communicate that in a way that will lead to international buyers being interested. Because I I could blame international buyers. I could say, oh, how come no one in the world is really interested in buying Chinese art? But I do think it comes down to, well, if you are in the Chinese art scene or art houses, you need to communicate what's great first in order to convince everybody else to get on it. Like, it's not going to come from external. It's not going to be like American entities saying, oh, we love Chinese art. We really think it's super interesting, et cetera. So there's two things that actually pop into my mind. It's like one, well, it reinforces the previous point I made about the maturity of the culture around art in China. But secondly, it's the marketing aspect. Mm -hmm. It's the marketing and it's, the branding aspect, like Chinese art just maybe needs to brand itself. And one thing that most people agree with is that Chinese brands don't do a great job around branding. Yeah. And my suspicion is that the reason why they haven't really gone to the same lengths or understood it is because branding is often a longer term play. And when there's a certain level of uncertainty around how you make your money and will you have full access to your money or will the government come and take it away? And this is me Mm -hmm. not necessarily saying this is what I believe so much as how I think some people think and I've heard it from other people. Like you're trying to make as much money as you can given a limited period of time, knowing you also are trying to improve your situation. So there's a lot of complexities there that we kind of know generally what makes a strong brand or what makes a strong movement, but there's certain things that are in the way that prevent maybe the Chinese art market from fully embracing all the necessary checkboxes to move forward. Yeah, I also wonder if it's that for political reasons and also just historical reasons, Chinese art houses, collectors, and buyers are not so good as at telling the story of why Chinese art exists, because I do think you wind up usually having to talk about political, geographical contexts, and maybe that's complicated to talk about. As in sometimes, or for me, what I feel like when when art is, when fine art is really appealing is when you can understand the context in which someone made it and how that informs um, the way we live now, right? So it's not just something looks pretty, but that it was, it's tied to a specific time and expression. Yeah. And maybe talking about that kind of stuff, whether it's historical or contemporary in China is more complicated because you can't really say negative things or you have to say negative things in really artful ways, in, in careful ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I think myth number five, Western collectors are becoming increasingly interested in Chinese art. Reality, sit back. This is going to take a while. Yeah. And so many things, like even language, right? Like what's the predominant Western language that everyone can sort of come together on? Is this a trick question? Because it's, it's English. It's English, right? So it's English, that being one element. But secondly, you need to have the people that have the knowledge to be able to communicate in English to the external uh, people. So now you've effectively done a double elimination. Yeah, it's kind of, this is, a, this is a, a very interesting article. I think I definitely learned a lot from it. Yeah, actually. It's funny the, because like, mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, I think it's funny you, you mentioned the actual publication being Artnet because I don't usually read Artnet only up until recently. Oh, well, I think Artnet's good. I, I know this about Artnet. It's more, it, it has hard numbers. It is for, people who are genuinely more interested, like they don't fluff it down in any way. And I totally skimmed over all of the numbers that they give you in terms of like over time and auction lots over a million dollars, et cetera. But they provide that information for people who are, who want that. I think that's a good place to finish things off. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E, and Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S. We love hearing your feedback and it really kind of gives us some ideas of potential topics we can talk about or just how we can improve upon things. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>